the Nubian ibex. Remarkable animals. When I, when I first saw this video, I, um, I thought to myself, this is, this is us. Like, not the TV show, but like in real life, this is, this is us. The female ibex bears its kids. Kids are these baby goats, right? On these tops of these plateaus, where it's relatively safe from predators, right? Um, but within a first week of their lives, after they've kind of learned to walk a little and started playing on the edge of these cliffs, right? Playing on the edge of a cliff. They start to make this, their way down this rocky road. I was thinking about my life of faith and, and growing up into adulthood and how Aaron and I try to raise our kids. We have young kids and, and there are certain things that they're just not allowed to do, right? We try to safeguard them in their infancy, keeping them safe from the things that would prey upon their health and their safety. But as the ibex recovers from birthing its kids, she must descend this mountain because at the bottom of the mountain in the valley is where the food is, and she has to eat. So she begins to go down these steep cliff walls, and, and with her kids behind her, she begins the journey. I like how the narrator said that the mother shows the kids the safest way to go. I feel like my mom and dad really tried to show me the safest and best way to go. They guided my young life. Um, but each of us, as we, as we travel down this road of our own lives, we drift farther and farther from our parents because we're not our parents, and we become the individuals that we are. We each decide the own, our own way to go, and, and just like the kids in the video, um, the farther that they stray from their mother's path, the more decisions, the more choices that they have to make. They have to, they have to decide, am I going to stand on this rock or that rock? Am I going to jump to here, or am I going to jump to there? They have choices that they have to make, decisions that they have to make. With their life hanging in the balance, they learn one step at a time as they traverse the rocky terrain. But what happens when a kid, a baby goat, makes a poor choice in this, in this journey? There was one in the video, I don't know if you saw it or not, one of the kids jumped to a rock and missed the mark a little, right? And the rock hit its belly and legs and it kind of like slid over the top of this rock, right? And what happened was each successive step after that mistake, that kid had to adjust as it went until it finally found stable ground again. It kind of barreled down the rocks, it couldn't stop the consequences, the consequence of one missed step. There was no undo button. There was no restart in the middle of the game. Instead, it had to adapt its next step, and then the one after that, and each successive step until it had regained control. How is this not a picture of our lives? How is this not a picture of our lives? Our actions have consequences, right? One missed step. One stumble along the way sets us up for a course of consequences, consequences that dictate our future steps, where we go next. 
And it's amidst these consequences that we have spent the last four weeks in Habakkuk. See, Habakkuk 1 and 2, in, in Habakkuk 1 and 2, we have dealt, we've been, we've been wrestling with these consequences to actions. Judah has fallen away from God, and the consequence is that God is sending Babylon to judge them. Habakkuk doesn't like it. He doesn't think it's a good idea. How can God do such a thing? God speaks to Habakkuk again, and he says that Babylon will be destroyed because of their ex um, extortion, their arrogance, their bloodshed, their immorality, and their idol worship, which we talked about last week. But when we get to Habakkuk 3, when we get to Habakkuk 3, we find something else entirely. We turn the corner, and the entire tone of the chapter changes. We move from being confused. We move from confusion to clarity, from, from fear to faith. Here's a key observation from the whole book of Habakkuk. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. But Habakkuk has changed on the inside. You see, we find a lot of bad news in Habakkuk 1 and 2, where we've been the last four weeks. But Habakkuk 3 is full of good news, and it ends with this idea of hope and praise. So how did the prophet Habakkuk go from this initial state of worry and fear to a place of confidence, joy, and praise? How did he get there when nothing around him had changed? The people were still mocking God. Violence still controlled the streets. And Babylon was still coming to destroy them. Outwardly, everything is just as messed up as it had been in the beginning. Yet Habakkuk the individual had changed on the inside. How did it happen? This chapter gives us the answer. The outline is really simple. Habakkuk 3 contains three things, a prayer, a vision, and a testimony. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through each of these three and see how Habakkuk's spiritual journey unfolds. And so it starts first with a prayer. And we find it in Habakkuk 3, 2. It'll be on the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, you're more than welcome to. It starts like this. This is Habakkuk's prayer. I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. In the face of disaster, Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, prays. Babylon is coming with a sword, ready to destroy them. But instead of arguing and instead of complaining, as Habakkuk has done already and earlier in this book, he does something different. Habakkuk prays. It's important to understand and to realize what he prays and how honestly he prays. He begins with this reflection. I have heard all about you, Lord. I have heard all about you, Lord, he says. I know your story, he says, and how you've worked in the past and throughout history. I remember what you've done. Habakkuk goes on to say, I am filled with awe by your amazing works. When you think about how God has worked in your life, what is your first response? Is it awe? Habakkuk 
realized is that God has done amazing things in the world up to this point. And when he reflects on those works, he's filled with awe. Side note. Side note. God has done amazing things in your life already. Whether you choose to accept it or believe it or not, God has been working in you up to this exact moment in your life. When you think about how God has worked in your life personally, what is your first response? Is it awe? Is it awe? Because God has done a work in you already. The things that Habakkuk is in awe of are things from like the Exodus, which he goes into in a little bit later, and he thinks about how God has worked in the past, right? So for Habakkuk, in his time, his memory would be things like the Exodus, right? The plagues, the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, right? Going back to the stories of to Joseph and, and Jacob and, and, and all of those stories, right? That's what his memory of God would have been. But here's the deal. Outside of your personal experience of God, Habakkuk's life story is actually part of our story as well. And so the things that Habakkuk stood in awe of, we too should stand in awe of. Just the problem is, is we're a little more removed from the situation. We're a little more removed from that time. And our memory is not always that good. Then Habakkuk says this, In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. It's like he's saying, you've done this before. You were present before, God. Do it again. Side note, again, if God had saved you at one point in your life, if God has guided you at one point in your life, if God has forgiven you in one point in your life, if God has given you that sense of inner peace and clarity at one point in your life, if God has shown you mercy and grace and forgiveness and love at one point of your life, why can't God do it again? Why don't we ask for it again? Habakkuk sang this prayer, and it's a genuine prayer. Bear in mind, he sang this prayer out loud, out loud when nothing had changed, right? The situation is bad. Judah does not follow God, right? Justice is not really a common thread of their society at this point in time. God is sending Babylon to destroy them. But Habakkuk finally bows down before God and says, God, do it your way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. But everything has changed inside of Habakkuk. Instead of arguing about Judah, instead of complaining to God, Habakkuk finally submits. There's an old Chinese prayer that goes like this. O Lord, change the world. Begin, I pray thee, with me. You see, the greatest challenge is the person we see in the mirror every day, and Habakkuk realizes it in this prayer. The second part of Habakkuk's spiritual journey is a vision. After he prays this prayer, um, Habakkuk has a vision of God. Theologians call it a theophany. Everyone say theophany. Theophany. Right? That is a fancy term that it means um, the appearance of God on earth. Right? And in this case, this theophany um, is described as like a vision or, or a dream. Right? 
a vision or a dream. And the prophet records his experiences in verses 3 through 15. Um, And these verses are really poetic because if you think about it, if you had a vision of God, right, you probably would write it down in a pretty poetic way. But the point is very clear. Knowing that his nation faces imminent danger, Habakkuk prays something like this. Lord, do something. This vision is God's answer. As if God says, Habakkuk, you've forgotten who I am. You're talking like I can't even hear you. As if if I don't have any power. Let me show you who I am. Let me show you who I am. Because if you know who I am, you'll be able to sleep at night. And in these verses, Habakkuk recounts God's activity in the past, especially the Exodus, which are really hard stories to read. Sometimes we read the Bible and we wonder, we wonder, can God actually do that still today? Could God actually do this again? And the answer, quite simply, is he's God. He can intervene at any moment in our lives, in the affairs of our lives, anytime he wants we can get a flavor of this theophany starting in verse 13, which says this. You went out to rescue your chosen people, to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked and stripped their bones from their head to toe. With his weapons, you destroyed the chief of those who rushed out like a whirlwind, thinking that Israel would be an easy prey. You trampled the sea with your horses, and the mighty waters piled high. Look at the verbs. You went out, you crushed, you stripped, you destroyed, you trampled. This is about what God does. He gets all the credit. And we see two things very clearly here, two things very clearly. First, the utter defeat of those who oppose God. And second, the divine determination to do whatever it takes to deliver God's chosen people. These are hard stories. This is not a children's book. When you read these stories, they're hard to think about because it's not necessarily a happy thing. Why are these stories even in the Bible? Perhaps they're there as a reminder that we've not found a God big enough for our modern-day problems. If we had a bigger God, we wouldn't worry so much. If we had a bigger God, we would be stronger in the moment of crisis. If we had a bigger God, we would be less tempted to compromise. And then, the final part of his spiritual journey, Habakkuk gives a testimony. And the first thing we find is acceptance. Starting in verse 16, we find this. I tremble inside when I heard this. My lips quiver with fear. My legs gave way beneath me, and I shook in terror. I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. This is Habakkuk saying, I get it, Lord. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to attack us. And then later you will judge them. And I will wait for that day to come. I will wait patiently for that day to come. And as it turns out, Habakkuk probably never saw it because it was nearly 70 years later when Babylon was actually destroyed. So he probably didn't see that day. But his words have the same meaning. It means message received. I get it, Lord. The second thing we see is commitment. And verse 17 and 18 shows us what faith looks like when our worlds tumble around, around us. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms 
and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails, and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields, and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice. Say those ones with me out loud. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The word rejoice literally means jump for joy. In our current context, it probably means more like dance with joy, right? But you get the idea. Habakkuk is describing a total economic breakdown, right? Ancient, ancient Israel was an agricultural society, and if you ran out of figs, olives, grapes, grain, sheep, and cattle, you were in big trouble. This is not a random list. Let's put it in our own context for a moment. What if all of your investments disappeared tomorrow? What would you do if your entire investment portfolio was wiped out? What would you do if tomorrow the stock market imploded? What if it totally tanked all the way to zero? What would you do then? Investments gone, pension destroyed, 401k or 5013b completely wiped out. What then? How do you face that? What if you lose your job or you don't have any food to eat? What if you can't pay your bills? What if your children end up in jail? What if your loved ones never come to Christ? What if the doctor says, I'm sorry? There's nothing more I can do. What if your spouse has a heart attack and you're left all alone? What if you lose your job because you're a Christian? What if you're targeted for your faith? What then? Kay Warren is the wife of Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church um, in Southern California, the author of the, the book, The Purpose Driven Life. I'm sure many of you have heard of them, or at least that book. But Rick and Kay were put in the spotlight in a very sad way a few years ago when their 27-year-old son, Matthew, committed suicide after struggling for years with mental illness. <clears throat> and the next year, Kay made some personal reflections on what would have been Matthew's 29th birthday. And here's a part of what she wrote. On July 18, 1985, I gave birth to our beloved gift of God, Matthew David Warren. Holding him in my arms that morning, I had no idea how dark the journey would get for him and for those who loved him. All I knew that bright morning was that I was madly in love with him and could see nothing ahead but a mother's dream of a good life for her son. I remember Easter, 1985. I was sick in bed and unable to go to church. Rick took the kids to church, and I stayed by myself for a few hours. The TV remote by my side, my only companion. Somehow, I dropped the remote and couldn't retrieve it. So there I was, alone on one of the most joyous holidays, with not even a TV preacher to keep me company. I was full of anxiety and fear for myself and my unborn child. I painfully reached for my Bible, and it fell open to Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crops fail, and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. 
This was a word of the Lord to me, and I determined that, if, that even if my worst nightmares came true, if my baby died or I never walked again, that I would trust in God my Savior, I would rejoice in the sovereign Lord. Matthew David Warren was born, and everything seemed fine. But by his first birthday, we began to wonder. And by his second and third birthdays, we knew he wasn't like his older sister and brother. When he took his life last year, after battling and fighting so hard for decades, a friend sent me Habakkuk 3 in a sympathy card. She had no idea this passage was incredibly significant to me, but it was a fitting bookend to his life. Because I had feared for years that he would take his life. It became his greatest pursuit and my deepest anguish. I had to come to the point in which I had said 27 years before, even if my worst nightmare came true and he takes his life, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God, my Savior. So today, his 29th birthday, though weeping, I shouted to the watching universe, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. My heart remains wounded and battered but my faith is steady. Someday there will be, as Stephen Curtis Chapman says, a glorious unfolding of all that God has in store for me and my family. God is faithful to his promises of rebuilding and restoring the ruins, and I am confident that I will yet be a witness to many, many, many lives healed and hope restored, all because of my beloved gift of God, Matthew David Warren. I miss you, darling boy but it will just be for a little while. Too many Christians have a God of the good times. They serve God and love Him and praise Him when everything's going well. But what do you do when hard times come? If all we have is a God of the good times, we do not have a God of the Bible. Sometimes there are no fig trees. There are no fig trees. Sometimes there are no grapes on the vine. Sometimes the olive crop fails. Sometimes the fields produce no fruit. Sometimes there are no sheep in the pens, and sometimes there are no cattle in the stalls. What do we do then? We can get angry with God, or we can choose to, to, to ignore God, or we can choose to believe in God anyways. Often we mistake faith with our feelings, but our faith isn't about our feelings, nor is it about our circumstances. Faith chooses to believe when it would be easier not to believe. I want to say that again, and I hope you hear this. Faith chooses to believe when it would be easier not to believe. Faith chooses to believe. Habakkuk said, I wait patiently. I wait patiently, and I will rejoice. And he has found a new strength in the midst of desolation because his faith chooses to believe. The last verse in this book says this, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure Footed. Say that again, as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. 
Amidst everything that has happened, Habakkuk realizes that his strength comes from God. And when he finds his strength in what God says and what God has done and what God does, he becomes sure-footed, able to walk even on the shaky ground, no matter what happens to him, no matter what happens to the Israelite people, he can remain sure-footed, able to traverse the uncertain terrain because his strength is found in God alone and in nothing else. And that's where the book ends. Let me, let me repeat the single most important observation of the entire book of Habakkuk. Are you ready for it? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed on the outside. Nothing. Judah has still forgotten God. Violence still reigns in Jerusalem. The wicked still oppress the righteous. And the Babylonians are still God's appointed instrument of justice, or of judgment. Hard times are coming, and there's absolutely nothing anyone can do about it. Nothing has changed except this. Habakkuk has changed on the inside. We all come here from different places in our lives, different situations. Some are happy and some are sad. Some are healthy and some are sick. Some are excited about the future and some fear and face dark clouds of uncertainty. But if we know the Lord, if we know Christ as our Savior, we can still have feet that are sure-footed and stable in the worst moments of our lives because we are able to stand with God's strength while those others around us fall. as this message and this series come to an end, I leave you with one final thought. One final thought. As you face the challenges and trials, the struggles, the uncertainties, the surprises of life, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, you will quickly realize that he is all you really needed in the first place. Will you pray with me? God of us all, like Habakkuk, we find ourselves in a world lost and in desperate need of your presence. Lord, we struggle to understand the why behind our trials. Yet we rest in the confidence of knowing that you are still God and that we are not. Give us strength to endure the trials of our day Envision to see you amidst the storms of our lives. Thank you for your son, Jesus, whom you gave for us so that we might find life in you again. It's in his name that we pray. And all who agreed said, amen.